school Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Well, folks, it's the Paul Leslie Hour. Now in our 17th year, you know, it isn't half bad. I want to thank Daniel, who made a contribution recently, really made my day, put the wind in my sails. Every bit helps, small, medium, or large, you can make a contribution by going to thepaulleslie.com. You'll see a button that says support the show. It's just that simple. It's all self-explanatory. You can take it from there. You hear the new theme song? That was performed on the piano and recorded by John Primerano. And I have to say, I love it. Doesn't he sound great? Check out johnprimerano.com. John is up there in Philadelphia. He's a fantastic guy, a great pianist. This episode keeps the piano theme going. Jason Burge and I are back at it reviewing another of singer-songwriter-pianist Billy Joel's albums. This was a lot of fun to do, and anytime you get to co-review with Jason Burge, well, you have to take him up on it. The answer is not no. Well, let's get into it. Hey, it's me. This is the Paul Leslie Hour, and this is the ongoing series. It's still Billy Joel to me within the show where we review all of the studio albums of singer, songwriter, pianist Billy Joel. And we do this in chronological order. This is It's Still Billy Joel to Me, Volume 4, Turnstiles. This is the fourth installment in a series where we indulge in things refined and we hide our hearts from harder times. I'd like to introduce my co-reviewer, Jason Burge. He's a veteran reviewer. He has a musical background and is a pianist himself. He is a legitimate Billy Joel aficionado. In order to fully understand Jason Burge, we must look at Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. For any particular thing, ask, what is its nature? One of the natural innate qualities would be to review. He's reviewed movies, albums, and I suspect he has reviewed reviews. So, Jason, thank you for joining me once more. Thank you, Paul. I couldn't possibly top that introduction. <laughs> well, as I said, we're going to be looking at the album Turnstiles. This is the fourth Billy Joel studio album. The producer on this album, Billy Joel himself, Turnstiles was his first and only completely self-produced release, recorded and released in 1976. It's eight songs, and it's about 36 minutes in all. So, first of all, Simple question. Did you like this album? Oh, absolutely. It's easily, I'd say it's in his top three. Okay. Well, well, we're, we're starting off on kind of the, the, the same footing. And as I was saying, Billy produced this record himself. It's the only album exclusively and totally produced by himself. He co-produced a couple of them, but do you think that this was a good move? It certainly seems to be. I mean, it's such a leap over the last album uh, that you have to think that full artistic control sits well with Billy and probably allowed him to show off what he was capable of really for the first time. I think he also had a little bit more time to do this record than the last. But, you know, after this record, he never reverts back some of the struggles that he had earlier on in his career. And I assume that the ability to fully spread his wings and show what he can do at least once on his own 
let future producers he would work with, like Phil Ramone, understand what his ultimate potential was and help him get there. And I know you're you're always more uh, paying attention to who did the production on this. So I know you have thoughts on it. And so I'm interested in those. Um, but as as I know, this is one of your favorites before we get too far in, because I don't I want to end on a high note. I wanted to ask you, even though this is like some of the best songs Billy ever did, mm-hmm. there's two songs on it that kind of stand out. And this is the only thing I would pick on um, in, in the more prosaic sort of James. And I've loved these days, which are very literal. It's almost to the point to being distracting. What do you think of those two songs before we dive into all the good stuff? Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> I would say I agree that those songs are more simplistic and maybe they seem less poetic. I really love the song, James. And I have ever since I heard it because I can feel, I don't know if it's in Billy's voice or maybe it is just the, the honesty and earnesty in the lyrics. You can feel his concern for this friend of his and it's real brotherly love. And I've since learned that that song was written by, it was written about one of his friends and you can kind of tell like the, the song is, is, is like a, it's like a pleading for his friend. He He's begging his friend. It seems kind of impassioned, almost paternal in, in the, 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 the writing. I like James and I like, I've loved these days. I look at, I love these days almost like to me, it seems like a song that Sinatra would sing if Sinatra was a guy who sang about drugs. <laughs> so. <laughs> I take it you're not a big fan of those two. Oh, I mean, I look, they're, they're great songs. It's just in contrast with some of the, the finest, you know, songs ever. You know, they they pale a little. Um, but I know that you're such a big fan of this album, so I wanted your thoughts on it because I'm sure you, I've listened to this many times, but you've listened to it a lot more. So I, I wanted to get your impression of them since you'd spent more time with them. Well, if I could say one more thing, when I first heard James... I did feel like, wow, this is very, very different. It's just so plainly written in the lyrics. Really, really simple. That was one of the first things I noticed when I listened to this album. Yeah, definitely. Now, what do you think that, you know, getting back to your question, is Billy producing this uh, record on his own? Is, is this a big leap? Is this the right move? Yeah, I think so. And like you were saying, to go along with that, Having sat in the producer's chair himself, it maybe made him better at articulating with someone like Phil Ramone. No, I want it this way. Or no, no, no. You keep, you keep hearing this as a ballad. It's not a ballad. This is a rocker. You know, I think him, him having done this, it probably gave him a lot of confidence in his ability to do it. And I think it gave him an ability probably better to understand what it is to produce a record, he wasn't as intimidated by it anymore, would be kind of my take on it. And the songs on this album, they really, really vary. There's All You Want to Do is Dance, which is kind of, I mean, it's just full on, just a good, a good time. It's kind of like a reggae beach song, all the way to the more sad stuff. To quote one of the lyrics, they range from sadness to euphoria. 
this is probably a big question, but do you think Billy Joel is better with happy or sad? Uh, the easy answer here is sadness, I think, because Billy captures it with so much nuance. Um, you know, sadness is denser and weightier as an emotion and more concrete in the moment. And Billy can just kill it, you know, with sad songs. And sadness stays around longer than happiness in the short game. But in the long game, we remember the good times more than the bad. The one is also meaningless without the other. And I think Billy understands that and why his albums are always a blend. It has to be contrast. But when I look at Billy's best songs, or my favorite songs at least... I think rather than happy or sad, wistful comes to mind more often, which is kind of an existential sadness, happiness hybrid, the state of being slightly sad by retroactively experiencing happiness. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, look at songs like New York State of Mind, scenes from Italian Restaurant for the longest time, She's Got Away, Vienna, Until the Night, Piano Man, and on and on. These are all powerfully wistful songs without really being either happy or sad completely, but some of his best. And I think that that wistfulness may skin more toward the sad side on the scale. Um, but I feel like it's that sad for being happy in the past is kind of his thing <laughs> or maybe one of his, the lanes he spends the most time in. What do you think? Yeah. You know, just as you were saying that it was, it was occurring to me that yes, Billy Joel has written a lot of songs that are sad in nature, you know, as he would later record. And so it goes for example. But I think what he really, really knocks out of the park again and again and again is actually, I would use the word nostalgia. He has a very, very strong nostalgic vein that goes through all of his stuff. I mean, right now, just saying that, I'm thinking of all of these songs that are kind of about that. Scenes from an Italian restaurant, which will come soon. <laughs> and I mean, all you want to do is dance. Yeah, it's an upbeat song, but like there's a lot of it that is he's longing for these other days. He says, why why don't the Beatles get back together? How come so nobody sings of romance? You know, th there's this longing for the past, which, as you know, <laughs> we cannot go back to. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, he comes back that well a lot. I mean, keeping the faith. And I mean, some of them are just, that's right on the nose, right? I mean, it's literally, my, this song might as well just be called Nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then take one like Angry Young Man, um, mm -hmm. which kind of sits in its own category. And I love that song so much. And it was one of those songs that I didn't, I didn't find until later because it didn't show up on his greatest hits and it blew me away. And of course he opens concerts with it and it just blows your doors off. But, you know, it's very philosophical, right? It's one of his songs that doesn't fit in that category. And I, you know, I wanted to kind of pick your brain on that. I mean, he's in his, what, what 26 when he writes this song? And he's probably still kind of an angry young man himself. And, you know, but it has this very philosophical weight of someone looking backwards almost on the time that he's in. I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts? Is he picking on himself a little bit here? Or is he already above it all or, or both? Well, I remember this was some years back. I want to say he was being interviewed by Howard Howard Stern, and he was talking about that song, and he was saying it was about a guy that he knew. So I I kind of know that little bit, but I do imagine it's a bit of him in the song. He certainly had some good reasons to be angry. <laughs> for you know, he he was somebody who you want to talk about. He hit quite a bit of bad luck. He had already had a lot of stuff happen to him, and I mean. For a man who made it on the other side of a suicide attempt, 
I can see where the line about sur- survival maybe came from. So I think it's clearly written from the standpoint of someone who's learned that it doesn't really do you any good to just needlessly carry a cross. But what what about you? Do you do you see more of Billy or do you see him writing this about somebody else or both? It's so hard because I I don't think I heard the song until I was probably almost in my probably in my 30s. And so I'm already kind of coming at it from a direction, but Every Billy Joel song to me always sounds like an old guy writing it because I started listening to it when I was young. And so it's hard for me to, you know, at any point ever think, well, how old was Billy when he wrote this? Right. I just never I never put it in that context. But going back through this and realizing he wrote it so early in his career, I just find that interesting. It almost seems like a song that someone would write in their 40s, not in their 20s. I agree. And And when I was listening to this album originally, I didn't think that a guy who wasn't that much older than me when I heard this album first would be the writer and and singer. You know, one of the reasons that this album was produced by him is I want to say that somebody was suggesting, it was somebody at the record label or whatever that was suggesting, why don't we get Elton's band to play on this? And why don't we get, you know, this producer... And Billy Joel was trying to not be Elton John. You know, it was like, why would I want to use Elton's band and just be the American version of Elton John? And that's something that he's been compared to a lot. It didn't help to to tour with him for people to make this. And I know we've talked about this again and again. He's constantly been compared to Elton John. Both of them are rock, pianist, songwriters, But how would you say that Billy Joel and Elton John are different? (laughs) And you wind me up here. You know I'm going to go on about it. It's funny how many times I've ended up in this conversation, the Team Billy versus Team Elton debate. And I'm Team Billy all the way. Not that I don't like Elton, I do. But the comparison always seems a little thin to me if not slightly absurd. Other than that they're both piano players that had most of their hits in the 70s, they're just not that similar to me. You might as well compare Eddie Van Halen and Neil Young because they both play electric guitar. And honestly, they're probably more similar. Elton is a songwriter as a pianist, but he didn't write most of his lyrics. And you just can't compare the two with Billy writing the words and the music to all of his songs. Even though I also think Billy's a better piano composer, and, you know, there's this sameness to me to Elton John's songs musically when looked at from a certain elevation. Billy's range is greater, much greater, I think, especially in his more introspective songs. And I assume that this has something to do with his tying his own life and words in with his compositions. Elton just doesn't have access to that com- uh, combination, and it shows in his variety. He has the, this soaring rocket man, crocodile rock, tiny dancer mode. And then he has that swaying candle in the wind, your song, Disney soundtrack bit. And he doesn't shift that far from either gear. Elton is always just a touch more style than substance than Billy, which is why two of his biggest hits are about a moody teenage lion voiced by Ferris Bueller. <laughs> <laughs> that said, Elton, Elton does whimsy better, which is why the Lion King and any other cartoon he writes for will bury Billy's Mostly unmentionable attempts in that space. Billy's at the bar, drinking with the workers and the soldiers and the lonely, and he's not allowed to leave. But Elton can wander yellow brick roads or float around the atmosphere all he wants. He's the rocket man, 
but there's only one piano man. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that you have you know thoughts on this. I how do you think they're different? How do you think they're alike? Okay, well, how I think that they are different. I would go along with you. I mean, I look at Billy Joel as being somewhat more accessible. I could be totally wrong. I've never met Elton John or Billy Joel, but I feel like if you are at a restaurant or bar and you happen to notice Billy Joel, you have a chance of talking to him. I think with Elton John, there's more of a, you know, and I mean, it even goes into their, their dress. I see Billy Joel wearing a baseball hat and a t-shirt. Even, <laughs> even just for a casual thing, I just don't see Elton John that way. I see him with all of the, the star styling. You know, you use that word style to refer to the music, but I think it even, it even applies to their dress. Elton John is, yes, the, the, the yellow brick road and, you know, Billy Joel is the street life. He's more of the hoi polloi. And so that's how I would say that they're different. Also, what you mentioned, Billy Joel had only one co-write in all of these studio albums. Elton John wrote the majority of them with Bernie Taupin. I would also say, this is where I get into trouble. Yes, I love Elton John. Some of the greatest stuff ever recorded. Love him, love him, love him. Billy Joel has more consistency. There, I said it. But you also asked how they are most alike. And I look at it like this. Billy Joel and Elton John both took the rock music. They took what the founders of rock and roll did. Fats Domino, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, all rock and roll pianists. And then the poetic sensibilities and lyricism of people like Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, and Gordon Lightfoot, and combined them. They're both rockers, and they have this also, There's, it's not just fun rock and roll music. There's a poetic quality, even if Bernie wrote the lyrics. The music, in the end, has this combination of being rock and poetry in almost equal doses. So now, may I ask, how you think they are most alike. That's tough because I want to take even umbrage with that statement because when I think of great songwriters and when I think of the Paul Simons and the Billy Joels and the Bob Dylans and the, you know, John Lennon's like I, Elton John doesn't even come near that to me. So like, I don't, I don't see a ton of poetry in Elton John's work. I see, I guess where I see that they're both alike is that, you know, they're respectively the most accomplished pianists other than maybe Jerry Lee Lewis when you think of, you know, guys that made it to the top of the heap in rock music. And so, you know, you can't take away Elton's chops. And I suppose maybe that's the reason why they tour together and why the people lump them in together because there's so few leading singers I guess, you know, Freddie Mercury, but like even then he came out from behind the piano plenty. It's, you know, very few other guys that you see camped behind their piano, you know, and still manage to become rock stars. And I think, you know, when you look at Elton John's over the top, they're always sitting down, you know, and, and Elton, I think possibly was countering that 
by and hot, you know, to get out from behind the piano by dressing himself up. And, you know, cause uh, you know, singers often just get to stand there and work the crowd and, you know, it, it, most are fettered by a guitar. These guys have to continue to work the audience, but uh, while they're still very tethered to this giant thing in front of them. And, you know, Billy never really, you know, got over that, try to be cool hump if he ever tried. I mean, other than just getting up and opening a show up with Angry Young, with Prelude and just watching him fly. I mean, that is a physical performance that he's giving. You know, I suppose that's, that's probably why they're so compared because they managed to pull off being rock stars while stuck behind a piano, which is not that easy to do. I mean, if it was, there'd be more people doing it because I mean, piano is simply such a versatile instrument with, with, with so much, you know, so much to it, it's much less limiting than most other instruments, but man, it sits you down and it puts you behind that, keeps you away from the audience. So, I mean, you gotta, you gotta give them both a lot of credit for pulling off that when, when so few did. Interesting. Interesting. One of the things about this album, Turnstiles, that I think is undeniable, at least I think it's undeniable, is it's just very New York. It has one of his most famous songs, New York State of Mind on there. And I thought this was kind of interesting. As we mentioned on past episodes, Billy Joel thought of himself as being a songwriter that other people would record his work. He wouldn't necessarily be the recording artist. And when New York State of Mind got recorded by Barbara Streisand, despite him having his own albums and, and getting radio airplay, that was when his parents were kind of like, our son is actually, he's actually doing something. Barbara Streisand recorded one of his songs. <laughs> so, but <laughs> that song, New York State of Mind, it's kind of become a standard. I think it actually qualifies as a standard. It's been covered by everyone from Barbara Streisand, Tony Bennett did it. I've heard instrumental, many jazz groups do it as an instrumental recording. Why do you think there is such an allure to this song? It's hard, it's hard to really nail down the quality of a thing that makes it timeless. The je ne sais quoi that makes something stand above its era or mark it as such a monolithically perfect piece of human expression that it dwarfs its contemporaries. But this song has that quality. And it's Billy's favorite song, I believe, um, he said. But, you know, anything about New York has a better shot at doing that than most things in American culture. Because our obsession with the city is so complete as Americans, it's almost religious. You know, couple that with another of our favorite drugs, nostalgia, and, and particularly nostalgia for the immediate past, <laughs> and, and you have a recipe for magic. New York is at once everything that we were, everything that we are, and everything that we could be tomorrow. She is our past and our future. And if you write her a great love song, we are all on board. And you give that job to arguably our greatest ever singer-songwriter, and it was almost inevitable this song was going to become part of the culture. What do you think? Hmm. Well, first of all, very, very well put. I think you really, you really nailed it there. And to go along with it, it's so singable. A lot of times, even the big singers when it all comes down to, despite their incredible vocal chops, they're looking for songs that they can, in fact, sing. I remember one time, I wish I could remember the name of this guy, but you and I were hanging out very late at a bar in Smyrna, which is a place in Georgia. 
And there was this dude, he was really good, and he was doing New York State of Mind. And thanks to libations and his good performance, we were singing along with it. It's just one of those songs, you hear it sung, and it doesn't matter when you turn to that station or when it's when in the song it starts playing, you, you immediately want to sing <laughs> or whatever. It's got that singable quality to it. You also mentioned nostalgia, and I think that plays a very big part, especially when you think about Barbara Streisand and Tony Bennett, two great singers from New York. He wrote that song in imitation of songs from the 40s. He was trying to kind of write in that style. So by writing a song in the style of one of the standards, interestingly enough, he kind of creates a standard. Going back to what we talked about, Billy Joel tries to write a country song. He's such a good writer, country singers are drawn to his work, and they do it. So he tries to write a standard song, and standard singers, Streisand, Tony Bennett, and so on and so forth, I think Johnny Mathis did this one also, then they they want to sing it as well. He just has that ability, and that's the allure, is, is his ability to take you when you're listening to that song you could be in any decade and you kind of have this picture of New York, an idealized picture maybe, but you could imagine that song being sung by a singer in the 80s, but also maybe Frank Sinatra for that matter. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, what is the leap here on this album? I mean, is it the time? Is it the production? What? This is such a an improvement. What, what happened? What, what do you think's behind the, you know, all these classic songs coming out of this after such a, a struggle he had with the last one? I think Billy had experienced his share of compromising. He'd had pressure from label people, label executives, the business side of music. And I think he decided that it was time to do it his way. He was putting his art first. He produced it himself. I think it was, you know, I'm going to I'm going to put this out the way I want it to sound. And I also think it's the fact that he returned to New York. The album starts with Say Goodbye to Hollywood. I think that says it all along with this love song to his home, New York, you know, and I think it was a homecoming and it was him having the confidence and the strength to put out something that he was proud of. It was the right decision to produce himself and to do it his way. What about you? I, I sense that you feel that this was a major improvement over the last album as well. What do you think the reasoning for that was? Yeah, I think it has to do with songwriting maturity and, and more control and confidence. But, you know, I'm you're you've had an experience with this album so much more than than I have. You know, I I'm kind of more interested that this is your favorite. I mean, having a favorite Billy Joel album, that means something. So you know, I want to know why this is your favorite of all the phenomenal ones, especially with the next couple, you know, after this, which are Stranger and 52nd Street, which are just phenomenal. Why is this one the best? It's the best for me in that I feel like I inevitably want to hear the whole album from beginning to end as one complete work. That might be in part because it's a short album. It's not that long. 
but I just love all of the songs. I also think I'm being objective enough to say that I realize that there's a lot of familiarity for me. It was a real solace for me during a very depressed time. I mean, I would listen to this album, and I would start it again, and I would play it again. And I, I will say that doing this series has caused me to have a greater appreciation for some of the other albums, in particular the first one, Cold Spring Harbor. Listening to that album, Cold Spring Harbor, with such concentration and really analyzing, it, it's elevated it to kind of like a photo finish for me. And I think that's wonder, one of the wonderful things about this series is the freedom to change your mind and to increase in, in appreciation and also to find the things that we don't like as much, maybe, as well. But with this one, I think it's the fact that this was a solace for me for, for such a long time. I was listening to it. I was hearing a lot of the things in the song. I saw sometimes a little bit of myself in James in that I was being pulled by certain people to be who I wasn't, and I wish I had a Billy Joel <laughs> to, to, to sing to me and, and tell me those things. But then, again, I like all of the songs. I just think its consistency is really, really high. And, you know, when I've talked to really hardcore Billy Joel fans, it's funny because this one doesn't have the acclaim that some of the other ones, like The Stranger, have. But it does seem to resonate with a lot of his hardcore fans. I've heard quite a few of them say, you know what, pound for pound, Turnstiles is the best Billy Joel album, which that always kind of makes me smile. But I don't know, maybe there's some kind of sincerity in the fact that he produced it himself. Maybe there's an honesty that was somehow conveyed through doing that. But what I'm curious to know from you, because of the last three albums that we've reviewed, it seemed to me like the one that you expressed the most appreciation for, and I could be wrong here, was the very first one, Cold Spring Harbor. And I'm curious to know, is Turnstiles a better album than Cold Spring Harbor? And maybe also, is it a better album than Piano Man? And why do you maybe feel that way or not? Yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to take too much away from Turnstiles. I mean, I love Cold Spring Harbor, and really, it was a great find in doing this, given that I had only heard one or two songs off of it, and even I hadn't even heard the original version of She's Got Away. So, but this is really in the running for his best work here, Turnstiles. I think. I mean, it kicks off the trilogy of his greatest three albums uh, with Stranger in Fifty Second Street, I think, and. You know, I think a case can be made for any of those albums being his best up until this point. He's not going to couple over the fence per album, but this is the first time the iconic songs outweigh the lesser known tracks. And he keeps that up for a very impressive string of records to follow. That said, Cold Spring Harbor really did, you know, sort of knock me over because some of those very personal songs on it were were such a was such a great discovery. I knew pretty much what turnstiles had to offer. And in terms of, you know, there wasn't anything on it that I was well, summer Highland falls. I hadn't heard a lot. I knew it. It was, it was good to hear that a little, a little bit more, but I knew the hits. I love New York state of mind so intensely that it really elevates the album itself 
and it makes you start thinking of Billy as, you know, the um, indelible piece of Americana that he is. But certainly Cold Spring Harbor is is up there now. So I'm just thrilled that we're <laughs> able to learn so much uh, about Billy in this. Absolutely. So to ask a direct question, and don't don't give it too much thought. Just just kind of go with your gut impulse. Of the first four Billy Joel albums, which is the best one? Yeah, I, I definitely think that Turnstiles is the best with uh, with Cold Spring Harbor coming up behind it. Yeah, I'd have to agree. <laughs> well, I think we've 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 really uh, gotten a good groundwork laid for this series we're finished with volume four now so the next installment it's going to be volume five jason thank you so much for joining me absolutely thanks so much for having me paul honored to do this with you so we'll be taking a look on volume five at the stranger recorded and released in 1977 produced by the late great legendary phil ramone Thanks for joining us, folks. Until next time. Goodbye.